Welcome to A Seat at the Table, a series created to give marginalized college students the opportunity to explore critical conversations related to sociocultural moments. This series is brought to you by the Blacksa, Georgetown University's Black student-run media publication that aims to serve as a space for students in the diaspora to authentically and unapologetically express themselves. My name is Ryan and I'm a rising junior studying marketing with a minor in African-American studies and I am serving as the president of the Blacksa for the 2021 school year. I am joined today by eight Black politically engaged Georgetown students gathered at the virtual table to discuss their thoughts on politics and civic engagement. There is a lot on today's menu, so let's go around and have everyone introduce themselves, starting with your name, where you're from, your political identity, and what you're studying. Hello, everyone. My name is Bobby. I am a junior in the college studying political economy. Um, political identity officially registered as a Democrat, but in reality, it's a bit more complicated than that. Um, hometown, originally from Tanzania. That's where I was born, but I grew up in Des Moines, Iowa. Hey, everybody. Uh, my name is uh, Brooks Watson. I'm a senior studying management uh, in the business school with uh, additionally a minor in African-American studies. Um, I'm an independent um, but I'm also fed up with a lot of the electoral politics that goes on in our country today. Um, and I'm originally from Annapolis, Maryland, uh, but living in DC right now. Hey everyone, my name is Javon Price. I'm a senior in the SFS studying international security. Um, my political identity is a Republican. I do identify as a Republican and, and I grew up in uh, Northern Virginia, so local kid. Hi everyone, my name is Samantha Moreland. I'm a senior in the MSB studying marketing. I'm originally from Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm a registered Democrat. Hey everyone, my name is Fatu. Um, I'm a junior in the college, double majoring in English and Justice and Peace Studies. Um, I'm born, I was born and raised in New Jersey, but my family is originally from the Gambia. Um, and I'm a registered Democrat, but um, I'm really fed up with the two-party system, so yeah. Hey everyone, my name is Joey. I'm a junior in the college studying sociology and African-American studies. I'm originally from Frederick, Maryland. Right now I'm living in Virginia and I'm also an independent and I lean very strongly toward the, the far left. Hello everyone, my name is Alyssa. I am a senior in the college majoring in American studies and minoring in African-American studies. I'm from Baltimore, Maryland and my political, I, well, my political identity is a registered Democrat, but um, to echo what everyone else has been saying, it's complicated. Yeah, so you know, my name's Niall. I'm a junior in the college. I'm majoring in government with a double minor in sociology and African American studies. I'm a registered Democrat, independent in practice, and it's much more complicated than the title that I have on my ballot. But uh, my hometown is Bowie, Maryland. Well, thank y'all all for introducing yourself. So it's time to get into it. So we're now 19 days from election day. So using three words or less, I want you all to go around and describe how you're feeling about the state of this country right now. Unhopeful either way. We need revolution. The fall of democracy. Trouble. Post-election violence. I wanna move. Nervous. Piss the hell off. Wow, that was very powerful. So, um, I mean, I think this echoes a lot of the sentiments that y'all have expressed already, but I really wanna address the political polarization and the effect that tribalism has on our relationships as humans and individuals in our communities. And so for black Americans, I wanna know from your perspective, is there any inherent value to pledging allegiance to either of the two major political parties? Not beyond how they serve your interests. I think the political reality for a lot of Black Americans isn't necessarily that in a way that is without critique and nuance, I fully support this party, but state to state, ideology to ideology, it's that both parties by and large don't care about black people. Some are better at the vocabulary around it, the symbolic gesture, but if you're looking at the policy and the results, 
it's kind of the same in unfortunate ways, especially when you're looking like the Black Lives Matter movement and how it was in Democratic-led cities and Republican-led cities, we're seeing the same results. So it's much deeper than party lines. But I think the question for Black Americans is just, with which party can I find the most progress, even if both are categorically failing? And I think that's more so the question than total allegiance to either party and absolution. Yeah, to that end, um, now I'll put it pretty really well, so I'll be brief. Um, you know, life exists uh, beyond a binary. You know, there's not, you know, yes to no. It's not Republican or Democrat. Um, there's a lot of nuance to life. Um, and we'll get into a lot more of that uh, later on in the talk, but it's not a binary. Uh, you know, I would also push back just a little bit and suggest there is value in uh, being part of a community that has similar views to to you as well. So, I, you know, allegiance is probably the wrong word, um, but I definitely do think that the reason political parties exist is because fundamentally we like to be in groups. And so being with people in which, you know, you have some ideas you can bounce off with, I think it's a great thing. Um, but the, the word allegiance, I think, is, uh, is, 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 uh, is, is the troubling word for me. I think that in um, pledging to either of the parties, in some ways it, it strips individuals of um, freedom of thought and autonomy in that the parties are giving you a platform that you are to support. Um, and I think that that's detrimental in what is supposed to be a democracy when we are supposed to consistently be engaging in uh, the transfer of ideals and concepts. I think that it's harmful uh, that we have these two giant parties that can kind of just provide a platform. Um, and in many cases, um, people are tempted to have a blind adherence to this platform, kind of what we see um, in Trump's GOP, uh, this kind of lockstep movement. Um, so I think that there is, to Javon's point, I do think that there is some value in it, but I also think that it has the potential to radically limit and constrain freedom of thought. I would say everybody's kind of already said it, but I, you know, I agree with Javon that community is important, but I also think this question, this question has been addressed. Um, you know, even Dubois in 1950 made like uh, an essay saying, I won't vote. And he gave a really good reason, I thought. And the reason was neither party's actually gonna support me as a black person. And I think that that can be extended to anybody who does not have the interest of white society in the forefront of what's important to them. So, you know, I don't necessarily disagree with the ideology of having political parties, but I don't think the current system we have works for anybody who isn't white. And even then it's a little shaky. Well, I definitely appreciate y'all's perspectives. And I wanna know because for many of us, if not all of us, this is our first time voting in a presidential election. Um, for me personally, I voted for the first time when I turned 18 in the, in the midterm elections, but this will be the first time I have my say in a presidential election. So I wanna know how have the past four years, specifically um, the outcome of the 2016 election in which most of us didn't have a say so in, how has it changed your outlook on po political participation? And are you more passionate about politics or have you found yourself disillusioned with the current political system? I can take this one first. Um, I guess in 2016, I didn't vote. I was a senior in high school, I was 17, so I wasn't able to vote. And I didn't realize the importance of voting until the election results came out that Donald Trump won. And I think after that, it really sparked my interest in politics and just like doing something for the greater good. Because when I came to Georgetown, like I immediately decided to get into the Senate. And I think doing that, like really triggered like some something in me like that wanted to like um, get into politics more. And then Leading up to this election, like in after RBG's death, like it's even more important that we all vote because it's in the hands of the president who who elects who um, appoints like the next Supreme Court justice is not in the hands of us or anybody else. So I think it's really important that we vote in this election. And I think that's one of the most important reasons that I vote, not necessarily because of all the policy, because like as everyone has said before, like it's really like the outcome is going to be the same, like nothing drastically changed even when Obama was president, in my opinion. But I think that this Trump, like these four years in Trump has really deteriorated America a lot. Um, and I think if we keep going down that road, then it's just gonna be keep getting worse. So elect someone else like Brett Kavanaugh onto the Supreme Court. So I think that's why I wanna vote. 
Um, I'm personally, I personally plan on voting um, in November. However, with me, I think it's more so the reverse. So um, I was a junior um, in high school when the 2016 election occurred. Um, and at the time I was like, damn, I wish I could vote. Whereas now I'm a little bit more, well, a lot more like less engaged. And it's more so just a thing that I'm like, what the hell, I gotta vote just because. But the passion is not there. And I think what's changed between these four years is just what I've learned about this country's history with like the whole voting system, voting, voting suppression, um, and kind of like the way it functions. And I think especially coming to uh, college and being exposed to like AFM classes and all these different things where I've actually learned, you know, it's a lot more complicated than what we learned in high school. Um, I've, I've just found myself to have like a lot less hope in the system. And now I'm just more so a lot more critical of politicians as well, which is why I'm not really engaged in this upcoming election. I just kind of see it as something that I need to like check off and do just for the heck of it. But the passion is not there because I genuinely don't see any tremendous change coming with either of the two candidates that are running. You know, for me, I did vote in the 2016 election. I was a, a senior in high school. And um, what I think, in my opinion, what this, you know, what the 2016 election did for me is it showed me, number one, that every vote counts, right? So I think a lot of the times, especially at least in my community where I grew up, a lot of people said, you know, look at the poll numbers. It doesn't matter. She's going to win. It's going to be a landslide. It doesn't really matter. He's crazy. He's yada, yada, yada. And, and he, here we are. Um, uh, but, you know, to counter a lot of the panelists, um, I, you know, I think I'm disillusioned with the state of politics and not necessarily the politicians themselves. I think the state of politics uh, is, is, is bigger than the people at the top of the ticket. Um, and, and that's just, and that, that's my personal opinion on that. I think if you look at the down ballot races, you look at the Senate, you look at the House, you look at some of the governorships and the AGs that are up, I think those are where you make your money. Like that, that's where actual change that affects people closer happens. The president only has so much power. Most of it is rhetoric. You know, things that he does on a day-to-day -day basis, sure, they can definitely have an impact. But uh, those local offices, those state, those state offices, you know, they're going to hit you sooner than he ever will. And so um, for me, that was a big thing, uh, you know, given the fact that in 2014, the Obama administration and the Democrats lost, I mean, hundreds of seats in state governments. And you, you see the, really the Republican takeover and, and where we are today. So, um, I, I, you know, personally, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I, I, I'm just, again, disillusioned with the, the state of politics, not politicians themselves. I was also a junior in high school when the 2016 presidential election happened. And it, it was really disheartening to hear the news that Donald Trump had won for me. Um, but I think it, it radicalized me more than anything. Um, and, you know, I think being, becoming radical, um, and I'm using that term kind of loosely happens through experience in knowledge and education through a lot of different avenues. But once I realized that, I mean, we really like, in some ways we really are fucked. Um, one of my friends said to me, recently like you know whether whoever wins republican or democratic like you're, you're you're choosing who to protect um under the obama administration like our foreign policies were very violent against certain countries in the middle east and he was saying um if you know if if the democrats win and biden comes back on into the um into the global stage and puts him in asserts America back as a global power, then we're gonna be sacrificing those lives over there. But then Trump winning can sacrifice a lot of lives in America. And um, especially considering that we, if Biden wins or if Trump wins, I think we're gonna see a resurgence of racial violence um, in a lot of states. So I, it, it made me more political and it made me realize that the ways in which I wanna be political have to happen outside of the governmental function of things. I think Joey's point really lies with what I think. I think ultimately 2016, it was horrible. I couldn't vote and there was a level of helplessness. But I think that just from a lot of the people who are on the panel now, I think it's very clear that between presidential elections, which are oftentimes what gets the most publicity and becomes like the national stage of conversation, there's a lot of activism, nonprofit work, legislative work that takes place locally, nationally, statewide that of several people on this board have on this panel have been engaging in. So I think the biggest thing that I've learned in the last four years is that 
whether or not you value elections, they are, even in the best case scenario, such a myopic aspect of civic engagement and community upliftment. So it's like the thing with Donald Trump is be mad at his policies and his rhetoric and his general disgrace as like our head in chief, I think personally. But I think that the work to combat his policies was four years ago and it's four years afterwards. So the voting for Joe Biden, even if you choose to do so, which I ultimately am, because I feel like that's a small aspect of my responsibility and I seek to carry it out. That's not the end of it. You have to, if, even if you vote for Joe Biden, like there's like, I hear a lot of people talk about a return to normal. To me, I think the point is to continually progress. I think if you go back to any period of time, if you're talking about the Obama administration, we're talking about foreign policy. If you're talking about Bush and Reagan, there are always marginalized or oppressed people across economic, cultural and racial lines. Like there's no administration that we can return to, no good old days that are actually sufficient. And so I think the goal is to always be moving forward. I think that's like, the aspect of the American political system that I value. And I think that whether or not we're taking a lot of these people with us is a really important question. And I think that even if we're talking about the Supreme Court, if you feel like your rights, at, like for example, I'm in Maryland. So if we're talking about pro-choice, even at a federal level, what happens there unless they ultimately get rid of Roe versus Wade. I know that because of my state Supreme Court, because of my legislators, because of the people I'm putting into office locally, that right is protected. So I think that's also a big thing. Just expanding the perspective beyond the presidential election is if that's what makes or breaks America when really there's a lot of moving of components at a lot of different times that make it clear how we live and how we impact the world around us as Americans. Absolutely. And we're going to get to that later on in the discussion, um, how you all feel about local and state um, elections and politics versus federal politics. But now to, to expand on your point, um, we looked back at the 2016 election with this last question, but I wanna know looking forward, what are your biggest fears when it comes to this upcoming election? I will, I will start off from that. Um, I think that there's a lot of things for us to be fearful about. Um, I think one of the things about living in this country, but also having lived in another country um, and sort of having the sort of uh, specific family history that I have is that I understand what it means to live under different forms of government. And I think that a lot of times people in America, as much as there's a lot of things terrible and horrible about this country, which we could go all, all day and all night about, there's also certain things that we take for granted. And the idea of post-election violence is something that I truly believe will happen more than most likely. Some form of violence, I believe is gonna happen, right? Now, granted, I don't think in the most modern elections that we've had, at least presidential elections, that we've seen like violence to the point where, at least post-election violence to the point where like the rest of the world is like freaking out. It's like, oh my God, we descended UN troops and whatnot. But I think for me, one of the biggest things that I truly believe that there's the sort of, there is gonna be post-election violence and that that is a huge possibility. And that we should be afraid of what Donald Trump is capable of doing in the next four years. I mean, he's done a lot of things in, the, in these four years that some of us probably thought he would not have been able to do. And I think with the last four years that he has, if he gets elected again, what will he want to do and how much more will he be involved in? And I think people should care about that and they should want to vote in this election. You know, I know some of us obviously feel like as if, you know, politics and the current electoral process is not the best representative. It doesn't represent us in the way which we want to. But I think we still have to vote because it's bad right now, but it could get a whole lot worse. And I think people need to realize that. Um, and just like everybody else has been saying, there's other ways in which you can get involved to sort of, in a way, I hate saying this, but to harm, sort of harm reduction in some way, shape, or form. But there's other ways in which you can get involved to help people to sort of protect those people who are afraid, whether it's, you know, uh, members of the immigrant undocumented community who more than most likely if Trump gets elected, they're definitely gonna be impacted in a truly negative way. And I'm not saying that Joe Biden is gonna be the mighty savior of undocumented immigrants. But I think that there's at least some things that I know for sure, and I believe that if Trump gets elected, it's just going to be way worse than I think most Americans have experienced, at least in our lifetime. Uh, and people should be afraid and they should be scared. But that doesn't mean that you don't have any hope or that you don't try to affect sort of any change in other ways, whether it's local elections or whatnot. 
but I think that there's a lot of things that we might lose that we may have not already lost yet um, if, if Trump gets in office again. So I think there's a lot of things to be afraid of. Uh, yeah. I think that I am most afraid of the precedent that Trump has set. Um, if when, when the Senate and the House failed to impeach Trump for the crimes that he committed uh, last year, as we all remember, I think that that kind of opened Pandora's box. So now the question becomes, what does presidential accountability look like? What I feel as if the, the checks and balances have been distorted. Um, and a lot of governmental and political actors have kind of relinquished their power. Um, and what I fear the most is this, what seems to be a global wave of fascism. Um, and this time, America is not the savior. We are the center of it. We are on the global stage, right? So we're not going into other countries and giving to them democracy, whatever that means, right? Like it's, it's all at home now. So I think that Trump has shown, has shown many people that there is a market for authoritarian leaders um, in the American political atmosphere. Now, I don't know in terms of like future elections, in terms of future presidents, I feel as though the limits of executive power will be pushed. Because again, Trump has not been properly reprimanded for his actions. Um, and the, again, just like that distorts um, our system of checks and balances, which is so detrimental uh, to the state of our nation. So I think that that's what I'm most afraid of. I'm, I'm going to push back a little bit on uh, both of those uh, for, you know, with all due respect to both of you, um, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not worried about the president getting reelected. If he gets reelected, then that's what it is. I think the president has had policies that have had great effects on this country and that have done some good. Um, you know, for example, we look at the First Step Act. Uh, it's a criminal justice reform bill, the first one passed. Uh, in, in, in the, what, two, three decades. And uh, this bill has been, you know, I'm a former White House intern. So every day I get a stack of, uh, you know, clemency packages on my desk of 75 men, women uh, asking, you know, to be released from 25 years to life in prison based off of a democratic president and the three strikes rule. So I think that this idea that uh, somehow that the president's not in office, that somehow this country is going to be better off, I don't see that. I mean, Joe Biden's a former segregationist. He support he didn't support desegregation of the buses. He's made numerous comments uh, targeting minorities. Uh, and first, you know, for me, what it, it, it's a difference between somebody who speaks their mind and somebody who's going to you know stand behind and say things you want them to say. But the policies won't represent that. The rhetoric might change, sure, but I don't see really any big political changes regarding how he treats black folk. Uh, you know, I'll give you another example. The president has a $500 billion platinum plan, which is uh, essentially a plan to pump $500 billion of capital into minority, specifically black communities. I mean, these are things that I don't think it's attention. Uh, I think it's easier to focus on a lot of the negatives. And don't get me wrong, he makes it very easy to focus on a lot of the negatives. But I think if you want to look at the policy merits of it, it's a whole different conversation altogether. Uh, you know, Joe Biden apparently doesn't think black people are he plays Despacito when he goes out to speak to a Spanish audience. Like these are the things that like are problematic, but we give excuses to because we're comparing him to the man that we have today. But again, I think the policies are where that's really at. So I think when we talk about uh, where do we go specifically as black folk, while I believe social progress, while I believe in social progress, I think it's great and I think it's necessary. At the end of the day, I don't think black people in this country are going to achieve true equality until we have economic parity, if not superiority at the end of the day. And the best way for me that, that I see that we do that is by we focus on the economic uh, side of things because, uh, you know, we, we, you know, you've got Democrats in office in places like New York, Detroit, LA, Atlanta, crime still up, same problems that people were complaining about in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. It's the same thing. And these are democratic strongholds. So uh, for me, that tells me that clearly there needs to be a change in policy because the consistency of the policy hasn't added up. Uh, can I have like 30 seconds just to respond to that super briefly? Uh, so in regards to the First Step Act, so that actually was only for federal prisoners. And as we know, a large portion of uh, prisoners are held in state facilities. Um, in regards to Trump's impact on the Black community, well, as we know, the Black community has been devastated 
by the COVID pandemic uh, that the Trump administration willfully ignored now that we know that that actually happened back in January, February. Um, so in terms of the black community being better off under a Trump administration, respectfully, I disagree. Um, and I think that we have seen what the Trump administration um, has done, not only to the black community, but to this nation. There are 215,000 people that are dead. Um, and I think that it is in, it's really important to contextualize that this is an extremely uh, significant historical moment as it relates to COVID um, and the administration's lack of handling of the pandemic. So just those two quick notes. If I could also chime in before we go to the next question. Um, like, I, I see your point where you like the policy is like helping black people like allegedly. However, like if we continue just to vote for somebody who just like, if we vote for the white man who helps a black person, like why don't we vote for a black person that helps the black person? Just like we voted for Obama. So like we vote for Joe Biden, but Joe Biden's 80 years old, almost 80 years old. So like, we know he's not gonna, he's not even gonna run for a second term. That's what he already told us that. So Kamala Harris is gonna be the next one. And I think like a vote for Joe Biden is investing in a good future and not like just going with whatever candidate is better at the time. But I mean, if you look at what happened to Republicans when Obama won, they tried to, he beat uh, McCain, who was like a you know moderate Republican, and then he went on to beat Romney again, who was also a, like a moderate Republican. So if Trump loses, like we're gonna have the the Democrats are gonna have to come up with somebody who's extremely radical in order to beat whatever Republicans gonna run next. I just think we're just gonna keep going down this rabbit hole if we vote for Trump, like like not saying if we vote for Trump, but if like Trump wins, like we like like accept it, then like that's that's not positive. Like he could do good in four years, but there's gonna be another Republican candidate who can mess everything up. And I think like, since Kamala Harris is the VP, we're really investing in, in basically her presidency because like I guarantee like she'll be president in four years if Joe Biden wins, so. so. Uh, I think, oh, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, I was just going to say that I think moving, in terms of just, the usefulness of discourse, especially like comparing Joe Biden and Trump, if we're doing a tit for tat for like racism in private and public life and in policy, like that's not the argument to go with. I think Trump, his, Trump and his father were found by the Justice Department to be a part in like house discrimination. They put N for Negro on housing applications. He had a whole part, a whole page ad for the Central Park Five. We can talk about how he's increased the payload of drones, but also restricted the reporting on civilian casualties. We can talk about the COVID response. We can talk about the moratorium on the federal death penalty. We can talk about how his agent, his attorney general on his way out got rid of all the consent decrees. We're talking about police brutality. We can talk about them trying to bar nearly all Central Americans from applying for asylum or restricting asylum to public ports. We can talk about mass roundups by ICE. We can talk about a lot of things, not just in creating policy, but restricting policy. When we're looking at the housing department, when we're talking about protections and equal, equal housing, what was restricted? What was taken back, not even just from Obama, but from Reagan and Bush, people that we wouldn't categorize necessarily as proponents and champions for racial equity. He's done that far back. So I think that Trump is bad and Joe Biden is ultimately being compared to, and I, 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 I want to say that I agree with Javon in that a candidate's not a good candidate because they're better than their opponent. They're a good candidate because they're a good candidate. So it can't just be that even though I'm going to be voting for Joe Biden, because I do feel like we are objectively in a lesser, a lesser of two evil scenario, that that's enough to not be Trump. Because it can't just be four years of trying to go back to 2016. Because even if we go back to Obama's administration, to me, that's a failure because we should be advancing. Like there should be no return to normal. So I guess like all I wanted to say is that if we wanna do it, it's like Jeffrey Epstein had Democrats and Republicans on his island. So we gotta just like the facade of like one side's more racist than the other. Like there's the Maryland Democrat from the state that's called like my county N-wordville. <laughs> and she was a Democrat. So I think the nuances and complications of race and policy are more than just, well, you did a racist thing. Well, then you did a racist thing because the reality is, is that any white person who's in our political system over the age of 40 is probably not the cleanest in regards to racial record keeping. I would also like to point out to um, an earlier point made about um, 
how black people should focus on economic progress as a means to kind of escape, escape this reality. Um, I think that that just miscalculates what economic policy can actually do for the majority of black people and in tandem with that electoral politics. Even if you look at one of the first black mayors of DC um, and also, and you know, actually I have, I, we can just look at Bowser um, painting black lives matter on the, the sidewalk, very performative. Um, and you can also make claims like Lincoln helped emancipate the slaves. You know, the Republican party is not below looking for ways to benefit black people to push its own agenda. Um, and then the, the black people I think that, that are enticed by this are people who have capital, who have some form of access or some way to get access later into the means of production for this country. So that leaves out though, I think the majority of black people who are impoverished, um, imprisoned um, and you know a lot of other really nasty nasty things that this country has done to them but one point that i will agree with is biden's election scares me almost as much as trump's election because i think i th I, I truly think that biden's election will bring complacency the only thing that i can be thankful for from trump is is that he, he really made america look at itself and be like listen like like he like his 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 candidness made america be like yo this is actually like what america is it is racism it is imperialism it is it it is all of these things and the violence has never stopped none of these things have ever stopped it just increased under trump and i i am a little afraid of of white liberals forgetting that uh and democrats forgetting that when or if biden is elected um and even not to say I, you know, I don't necessarily rock with Camilla Harris either um, because of her support of the mass incarceration system. I understand you got to make a check, but, um, you know, so yeah, I, like, I, I think this question is really complicated for me, but those are some of my thoughts. And so I want to know um, to you guys, but before I present you the question, before the, the death of the truly superhero-like Chadwick Boseman, Boseman tweeted on August 11th, his endorsement of Kamala Harris, which caused many people on Twitter to politicize the act. And in addition to Chatwick, we lost another real life superhero this year by the name of John Lewis on July 17th. So I wanna know from you all, how has black death been politicized and used as a call to vote? And what are your feelings about Breonna Taylor and countless others being used as a means of getting black voters out to the polls? And maybe Brooks, you wanna start? Yeah, for sure. Um, and yeah, I'm gonna to try to kind of fuse some of my thoughts together as it goes on. So excuse me if it doesn't come out super clear. Um, but I will say just like to the last question and it ties into this one. Um, I think I have two things that I fear the most and um, it's the status quo and it's fascism. Um, the status quo uh, as long and even before the United States of America has existed, black bodies has been used for the sole purpose of gaining capital for the ruling class of America. And so we see these microcosms come out um, as we politicize black death. Um, and that's exemplified through, you know, through Chadwick Boseman's, you know, tweet and how people are using his, his, you know, last, last words, last tweets to shuffle people into in line into vote, you know, they shuffle to shuffle people to eight, into eight hour lines to vote for red or for blue. Um, and so, and to that extent, and, and Joey made a good point earlier as well, um, that kind of plays into this quote that I, I, excuse me for forgetting who, who coined this, but um, the United States of America is a one party system, but with its traditional American extravagance, it has two parties. Um, and that system's capital. Um, look where the capital is, look where the power is, that's what you have um, to deal with. And that's the reality that we have to navigate. Um, so to that end, I'll let, I'll let someone else go, but I'll, I'll leave with that. You know, I think that everyone has a right to um, not use, but gain from uh, tragedy in the way in which they best feel like as if they're gonna gain from that travesty, right? 
And I think that sometimes we have to differentiate what some folks on Twitter feel and what some folks who are not on Twitter feel, right? I think that people have a right to criticize those who say that just because Chadwick Boseman endorses Kamala Harris, that we black people should vote for Kamala Harris. I think people should criticize that. But I think for some people, they should also look at it as, well, why would someone like Chadwick Boseman endorse someone like Kamala Harris? Well, maybe let me try to explore more into that. And maybe let's, let me use that as a value judgment as to why I should endorse or not endorse her, right? So I think everyone has a right to react to those things in the way in, which, in, the way in which they want to. And I think on the idea of seeing all sort of all these black deaths occur, and that for some of us, or I shouldn't say some of us, some people feel like as if that's a way to also encourage folks to vote, like, hey, you need to vote because these bad things are happening to us. We're being killed, or whether it's by police brutality or whatnot. I don't think that necessarily within itself is wrong either, because I mean, we also, I mean, I know we'll talk about local elections later, but I mean, when we're talking about, you know, the daily brutalization of black people, especially at the hands of police officers that makes you want to think about local elections. It makes you want to think about who's your sheriff, you know, who's in charge of your town in terms you know, law enforcement, who's, who sits in your city council, who's the mayor, who's the city manager, you know, who has power in terms of being able to hold police accountable, that's even possible in, in you know, sort of the uh, city or the county that you live in, right? So I think that there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, these bad things are happening and let's try to find a way to uh, address them and and if addressing way addressing those issues is through voting and that's what you believe I think you have every right to say that and then if you want to criticize that I think you can um, but I think that we shouldn't be naive in thinking that our votes do not matter especially on the local level especially in the area I keep saying this harm reduction in some of these daily sort of sort of uh, brutalization that we experience at the hands of law enforcement especially I think that voting does matter. And I think understanding who really has the power in your city and in your county, your state is something that we should be looking at. And so I'm on the view that everyone has a right to, you know, use sort of tragedy in the best way in which they see that they should use it and learn from it and gain from it and become better from it. Um, and so I would never say that people are wrong to criticize or not criticize it. I just think that we all should learn from tragedy and the terrible things that we go through and try to look for the best avenues to try to address those issues and that that's voting in, in local elections or general elections. And then we should do that. That's doing something else. And then we should go for that. And so I think everyone has a right to be affected by it in the way in which it affects them and deal with it in the way in which they think is best to deal with. You know, um, I think it's important to understand there's an insidious underbelly to this as well, right? So for example, I, I made it no secret that I'm a Republican. And, you know, that's just one of the things that I see. And most of the people who I talk to, frankly, don't look like me. And a lot of the times these, uh, the murders of people who look like us are used to inspire people who hate us to vote as well. So there's an insidious underbelly to that as well. I think from the perspective of the question, instantly that's where my mind went. And maybe that's because around some of the people who I've interacted with. But there is, a, there is a deep motivation. I, I'm the, I'll be the first one to admit, my party doesn't have all the right answers. You know, we really don't. I don't believe that fundamentally we don't. It's gonna, it takes that cooperation between people who, who differentiate with us. However, there is a flirtation with fascism. I won't really go all out and call the president a fascist, but I think there's a, I definitely believe there's a flirtation with fascism. And there definitely is, a, is, 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 an, is an embrace of racism. And so a lot of the times, these deaths of huge figures, you know, you, you, you have the president going out to rallies saying things like, you know, they're coming to your suburbs. And the question I always ask myself is, who the hell is they? Uh, you know what I mean? It's very clear who it is, but you might as well just say it. Fuck it. Just say Black people at that point. You know what I mean? Like, I, if you're going to be racist, just go out and say it. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, you know, that's my biggest, my big thing on that is that there's usually two sides to every issue. And I think it's important to note that people will try to weaponize something, a tragedy. I mean, it's, 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 like I said, it's completely insidious, but it does happen. And it is something that we should be aware of. Um, when I think as, as black folk, we put people up to, you know, pretty put, put them out there and it's not just them. They've got families. These people have, they, they have people who know them personally. And so I've seen a lot of vicious shit said about Breonna Taylor and um, you know, that's, it's absurd to me. Um, that you that anyone could be as vile and vicious 
to come out their mouth and say something about a murder, frankly. So, um, you know, I, it's one of the things that bothers me. I don't really write answer. I don't know if you guys have any suggestions or, or just any conversations or comments on that, but uh, that's what I've noticed, at least from my side of the aisle. Um, so I want to touch on a couple of things. Um, first, I just want to emphasize, so it's not just tragedy we're speaking about here, but correct me if I'm wrong, Ryan, we're talking about specifically Black tragedy and the use of Black bodies. And I think that's where the key distinction is for me, because I feel like this country uses and exploits Black bodies in a way, in ways that it doesn't for others. So even in terms of the way we're looking at the way people are speaking of Breonna Taylor, the way people are exploiting her situation and using that to kind of like um, pressure people into voting a specific way. I think that that's something that's very distinct and unique to Black people. And I think what angers me most about it is that this country and people in it will take these tragedies and use them like every ounce of juice that they possibly can. And then in reverse, when like Black people are actually speaking about it, it's like, oh, this is in the past. Oh, you guys are overreacting. And I feel like we see that even with like, discussions of kind of like if we're talking about slavery and the way that even a lot of the labor that slaves put in we're still benefiting from today it's oh leave that in the past when we talk about a lot of other tragedies in this country that consists of mostly like white people i.e 9-11 it's never forget and I feel like there's something very notable about the fact that whenever it comes to black tragedies in this country it's exploited to the benefit of political gain and all of these different things and that's where it stops. There's never really, from my perspective, I never see any long-term benefit from it. Whereas I feel like with a lot of other tragedies of a lot of the times, specifically white people in this country, it's a lot more, I feel like there's a lot more respect afforded to it. And you don't see it kind of like exploited in the same ways that we do see black tragedies and black bodies. Can I quickly clarify that when I was saying in terms of the people that were reacting to these stats and whatnot, I was talking about in the context of Black people react to them in the different ways in different in which different Black people react to them, not about the larger society. Just wanted to clarify. It instantly made me think of the history of minstrelsy, because if you if you go back and look at the history of minstrelsy, um, and, and uh, an interesting fact is that minstrelsy is something that's considered America's like original art form. America doesn't really have an original art form except for minstrelsy, which I find very fascinating. But um, the reason I thought about that is because I, I think Fatou especially is right. Capitalization, white society in America capitalizes off of, of black tragedy. And you can see that in, in the portrayals of blackness that we have on, on social media, on TV. Even the other day, like I, I tutor for, you know, affluent um, parents in DC for like their kids, right? And um, have you guys heard of Go Noodle? Yeah, I, I hadn't heard of it, but Go Noodle, it's like this interactive fun dance thing that you can have and almost all the videos feature black people, right? But like, I feel like the only people who could really afford um, possibly, you know, that, that service are, are probably not black. And it's also like, it was commodifying black culture and these little kids loved it, you know? And, and I was happy that in that way we were getting to share that, but, but still America capitalizes off of, of, of a black person dancing for them. And I say dancing very loosely as in, Black people fuel entertainment, and that's the way that white people understand most Black people is through entertainment. And so I think that when when Black death is capitalized on, especially like you know tragic events like Breonna Taylor, um, um, you know, and uh, and others, I, I think that it's just a continuation of that legacy. That's the that's the legacy that that America's purest art form has given us, and I don't think that's going to stop. Um, you know, but I, I do agree with Bobby uh, that people have the right to respond to tragedy in the ways in which they should, you know, they, they, they want to respond to tragedy. But I, but I think that like capitalizing off of tragedy um, for political gain, monetary in any way is, is just wrong. And it's something that this country does too often. To continue on that, um, it's also about who, you know, just like, like you said, um, like who's, who is able to profit the most off of Black death and Black tragedy. And by this, I mean, we saw in the wake of, um, obviously, George Floyd's uh, murder uh, and the uprisings predated Breonna Taylor's, but we saw uprisings, uprisings in both situations. And we saw Black people 
white people, every type of people in the streets under the one common goal of, okay, we don't need police reform. We need police abolition. We need defunding the police. But white society was able to exert that power over this black death and say, oh no, you're asking for too much. No, no, slow it down. But white society on the same side of that coin is able to take Chadwick Boseman's death. They're, they're able to push people to the polls that they know black votes are gonna get suppressed because that's how the political system works. They take George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, they take Black Lives Matter and put it on a basketball court next to JP Morgan, next to banks, next to ads. They see black lives as a commodity. They, they see it as capital. This is how the system works. They, they can't see it in any other way. And they can't see it in any other way because they don't listen. And they don't listen to the demands of black people as we are. And as we are speaking to them, they deem it, as Joey was saying, as entertainment, as, you know, as, oh, they're here for us, but that's not the case. And I hope that, you know, this election season um, helps people realize um, and, and, you know, wake up in a certain sense that, hey, things aren't as rosy as they seem. Brooks, you mentioned grassroots organizing and mass mobilization. And to the group, I posed the question that does solely focusing on federal electoral politics serve as a distraction from local um, and state politics that sometimes have a more direct impact on, this, on the citizens' lives? I'll, I'll give an example. My first job in politics is working for Speaker Ryan in 2017, and I hated it. I hated national politics. He's what? Second in line in presidential succession to the White House. It was the worst job I had in my life. I hated it. Nothing gets done. Everyone, they sit around, they yell at each other. They talk about, they try to add little, uh, slip in little, you know, come pork in, you know, in, in, in bills that have nothing to do with it. It was the worst thing ever. Couldn't stand it. Went over to the Republican Attorney General's Association. And then after that, the Republican Governor's Association. And I realized very quickly that governors and attorney generals, some states have secretary of states and what have you, that, I mean, that's where the work gets done. You want to talk about you know, I, I know Nana was just talking, you know, I made some mention of her state's uh, abortion rights, right? And the fact that that state attorney general, that, their job is to defend that state in the court, right? And so that that's a huge role. Look at the governors and, and you know, you go and think from tax bills to environmentalism. I know Larry Hogan's been huge on the Chesapeake and you've got, unfortunately, my governor, Ralph Northam uh, in, in Virginia, who's who's had a, has had a rocky history, but you know, these guys, these guys do some things, right? These, these guys are, they're, they're there. And so um, my biggest thing when I always talk to people is, you know, as a Republican, oftentimes we get coupled with the person at the top of the ticket. Um, some of you guys up here identify as liberal. I don't know if any of you guys would identify as a Joe Biden Democrat. So I think in, in return, that same respect needs to be played because again, there are so, there's being a Democrat, being Republican, being liberal, being conservative, we're not a monolith. Of course, there's some sets of principles that you may generally agree on, but I don't subscribe to my to my party's abortion policy. I don't subscribe to my party's LGBTQ plus policy. That shit's outdated. It's old. There are candidates in my party who agree with me, and those are people I identify with, but they're on the state level. So I would encourage everyone that, you know, whoever gets to see this to go out and really look at state level politics, because that's where the rubber meets the road a lot of the time. I definitely uh, agree with Javon on that. Um, sorry, I'll take like one minute to say that, yeah. but I just remember like I voted in the primaries over the summer and so did a lot of my friends and I just remember getting a lot of texts from my friends like who should I vote for like what are they doing like did it all and like I just remember like none of us had studied like who was running in the state level like we didn't really pay attention to that. I didn't like I got my absentee ballot the other day and I just filled it out yesterday and I had to look up like what the four like constitutional amendments were and what like the state amendments were and like I realized like they, those were so helpful like they were like reducing taxes for people who you know live in like don't make enough money or like they like reduce uh property taxes on like charity so it's just like that is really like 
the information that we need to learn and like but in school they only teach us like the red party and the blue party but like they don't teach us about any like bipartisanship or any state level amendments or anything like or the judges or even like the attorney the attorney general because the attorney general of kentucky was the one who made the verdict about brianna taylor being guilty and like he's not elected on the federal level he's like on the state level so the state level is i think extremely important especially if you live in a state like mine like georgia which is like one of the worst states like i i think so i definitely agree that like state level should definitely be taken into consideration. I think any political perspective or strategy that is myopic and singular in its tract is harmful. I think the reality is, is that all elections, all political systems are interlinked and there's work that needs to be done in grassroots and community outside of political systems and things that have to be done, at least at this current point, through institutional pathways. So it's not just caring about the national election or caring about the state election. It's understanding that each has a position in place and how it interacts with people's lives. And that oftentimes when federal fails, state, state is the guard and vice versa. Like these are all intermingling branches. And even if you're talking about like state level, like states are the ones who are drawing district lines when we're talking about gerrymandering. We're talking about the national election, but when you're looking at states like Texas or Kentucky, when they're reducing the polls that are available, where you have a county that has 400 people, majority white, one polling station, and a 34K one. one of, I believe it's the largest one in Kentucky. It's majority black, and it also has one. So I think that even if you're looking at national politics and you're emphasizing that, the access to that ballot and the impact that it can have and how proportionate it actually is to the people who want to engage with that political process is wholly dependent on what people are doing on a state and local level. So I think that the reality is, is that I don't think anyone's wrong in this conversation. I think that's the biggest issue is a binary of argument. It's either we vote or we take down the system. It's either we, even though I think those are sometimes people try to make those things inherently like him inherently clashing, but I think that even if you are trying to take down the system, like if you are like, for example, a big ballot thing right now is police abolishment. Even if the best case scenario of that, if you get what you want in terms of abolishing police stations, there's no position in which there's going to be an immediate transition to not having cops on the street. There's going to be, even if you're transitioning out of that system. So that means that you need to be voting, having sheriffs, having AGs that as long as officers are on the street, even if you're transitioning out of that system, they have the best tools, the best like system of accountability. So it's like, yeah, I think that's basically what I'm trying to say is that Everything is a really vague answer, and I don't think that that's something that people value, but the reality is, is that we have to care about state, we have to take care about local, we have to care about national, and we have to give people the tools and the resources and the ability to be engaged. Because, yeah, the presidential election is important, but who decides whether or not you have early voting, who decides whether or not you can do mail-in ballots, who decides whether or not you have Sunday voting, which was originally in a lot of southern states when a lot of older Black Americans would vote. And so I think a lot of things are interconnected and dealing with one requires, necessitates that you deal with the others. Very good point now, very good point. And you mentioned gerrymandering and we are in a census year. So I just wanna emphasize the importance of filling out the census to everybody as well. But we're, we're winding down on our time, um, but I really wanted to know from you all that, so an argument can be made that politics is becoming more like entertainment and entertainment is becoming more politicized. So in your opinion, have politicians reached celebrity status? And is this something we should stray away from? So basically, what are the implications of standing politicians? I think, um, I think it's really negative that politicians have become celebrities. I also think that the reason we've gotten to that point is because of the way in which we allow people to fund campaigns, um, people, organizations, et cetera, et cetera. Um, or just the, the whole system of funding campaigns and how that works and lobbying. Um, but the reason I think it's, it's detrimental is because then you, you become obsessed with, you know, just like, like other people have been saying in this conversation, you become obsessed with, you know, the, being Republican means Donald Trump, right? Or being Democrat means supporting Joe Biden. Um, and that not, might not necessarily be the case. And it's more of a focus on those individuals instead of their policies, which takes the power away from the people and gives just corporations and the people backing those politicians more power. 
Um, yeah, I think this kind of like idol worship of politicians is extremely toxic um, in our political atmosphere. Um, and just kind of putting them on this pedestal. And again, the media kind of feeds into it uh, with the rampant hyperpartisanship and kind of like pitting us all against each other. Um, I think that it's definitely an issue. And I think that it contributes to the disillusionment. Um, and the best example of that is with former President Obama. Um, everybody was like, oh, you know, he's gonna be the savior of black people, right? Like we're put it, we invested so much into him only to be let down because again, the fact of the matter, as we all have said, um, the president, they're very limited and, and constrained in their powers and what your government and local county council, what they will do um, is much more likely to affect you uh, before a federal policy initiative does. So yeah, I, I do think that it is an issue on both sides, um, even looking at like AOC and like this kind of movement that has been like surrounding her. Um, and it's like, yes, it's progressive, but also we, we must be weary of putting anybody um, up as, as maintaining anybody as an idol uh, because that removes the possibility to critique um, and to really critically think about their policies and their actions and how they are uh, effectuating change or not effectuating change uh, for our communities. Yeah, Alyssa, yeah, you said it well. Um, you said, you know, essentially what I was, you know, the heart of you know, the heart of what I was going to say. I guess I'm going to focus on one specific aspect of what you're saying, and that's the, that's the media, the role that the media plays in um, uplifting celebrities. And, you know, celebrities in this sense are actors, musicians, and politicians in this day and age. Um, our president is a reality TV show star. Um, that should be very concerning um, because what they did for years was put him at the head of the table, um, dressed nice. He was one making the final decisions, making all the powerful decisions in this TV show. Um, and it's all fake. It was all, it was all fake. Um, but a lot of people get their news and get their information, including myself, from TV, from these cable uh, monopolies, conglomerates. Um, this is where people, Americans, are being influenced about not only domestic relations, but international. Um, you, can, you can see that with the media portrayal of, you know, it's, it's in the, what was it, in the, in the, in the, in the 80s, all the common enemy was always the Russians in TV shows. Now when it's, you know, crime, it's, you know, it's Middle Eastern terrorists. Um, and going back to Joey's point back then, uh, minstrel shows, that was the, black people were the original boogeyman. And uh, we still are, <laughs> that hasn't gone away sadly, but um, the celebrity status um, and the confusion between what is celebrity, what is politician, what is real, what is fake, has led to the hyperpolarization, has led to all this disillusionment. Um, and it's gonna take some serious doing from the grassroots level um, to critically engage what information we're taking in and interrogating that within our communities to, feel how, to see how our communities feel about it. So we can all have a consensus or reach close to a consensus about, okay, these are the strategic moves we have to make. This is the information that is true. This is the propaganda. I would just add, um, I would, I, I think that a lot of the, you know, politicians as celebrities is a fault of the Republican party primarily. If you go back to the Newt Gingrich era, he pretty much told people to move out of Washington and to spend three days, three, four days a week raising money. Joey, you, you hit the nail on the head, this is lobbying, right? So you go around, you ask these people millions of dollars instead of working with the people side by side. And so how do you make more money as TV starts to really take fold? You start going on TV saying outrageous shit, hoping that you can get millions and millions of dollars. And that's why you got people like Matt Gates who can go up there, who's actually really good friends with the Democrat, but will go on Fox News and say the most horrid shit about the, someone who he just had dinner with. And they do that to each other. Um, I also, um, but on the contrary, I, I'm, I'm not sure I have a problem with politicians being uh, uh, you know, be more active in politics. And this is coming from someone who believes that most people in Hollywood are probably liberal, right? I mean, it is, I think that's a fair assumption to make, but I don't think that's, I don't think that's wrong. I think um, for, if anything, more people expressing why they, what, why they believe what they believe and what they believe, that's their prerogative. You know, I think as long as people feel comfortable doing so, then sure, why not? I think we should encourage that more. And honestly, I wish there was some type of parody where we saw more conservatives who didn't fit that standard white old male model. Um, 
you know, come out and say some things. Cause even in private conversations with some people around the city and whatnot, I mean, there's a pretty like decent conservative base, but you know, somehow, some way, uh, the, you know, it never gets the attention that it deserves. And I think that, uh, again, I think the media does play a part in that. And Congress is again, fundamentally just broken. I just wanted to um, echo a lot of the points that were made, um, especially Alyssa and Brooks point. I think uh, with kind of like this increase in politicians acting as celebrity, I think what occurs a lot of the time also is sometimes like we stop taking them seriously. So even with both Donald Trump and you can say the same for Joe Biden um, and a lot of the things that they say, I feel like now you almost become kind of like numb to the things that they say. And it's just like, oh, this is just Trump saying another stupid thing. Or even like Joe Biden, for example, I think he was on The Breakfast Club and saying like, you know, if you don't vote for me, you're not black. And I think things like that, like they're much deeper. And I feel like a lot of the times we should afford it more like time and consideration to discuss like, yo, this is actually really problematic. But I think a lot of the times because it's like celebrity and we kind of like find it funny and you know they're intermingling with actual black celebrities and kind of the implications of that, we become to get a little bit less like critical as Alyssa was speaking about. And I think there's a little bit of danger in there just because these politicians do hold a lot of power in terms of what they actually can do uh, as opposed to actual celebrities who are kind of just like, you know, in entertainment or athletes, politicians actually do have like a big impact in terms of what we do. And I feel like that's something we need to remember um, when they do act as celebrities, that they are distinguished from other celebrities in that way. I, my belief when it comes to sort of, uh, sort of the different, the statuses that politicians nowadays in the U.S. hold, um, especially sort of some of the rhetoric they use and, and how we do it, is that kind of like Javon in a way, I personally, my belief is that if you're a politician and there's a other guy or another woman or whoever they may be on the other side who strongly disagree with a certain policy and you believe that what they're proposing is gonna negatively impact a segment of society or the larger you know, society at large, I think that you should vigorously argue with them and debate with them. Um, it doesn't, no, I'm not saying you should say racist things or you should say bigoted things at them or anything or not, but I think that you should debate with them, argue with them, whether you're on TV, whether it's in, whether you're in, in, in the House or in the Senate. I, on TV, I think you should disagree with them strongly and you should use strong language. I think the politicians should do that because a part of it has to do that a politician, they have to, uh, in a way, sort of express the emotions and sort of the feelings and the impact of what they're of what of the sort of policies that they're voting on. And so if, if there's a policy that I think it's going to negatively impact, let's say the immigrant community or the black community, and I'm there, yeah, I'm going to use some strong language and I'm going to be somewhat like almost like an actor to in a way because we're arguing or we're debating and I'm trying to express sort of the gravity and the impact of these policies. And so I don't have an issue with politicians going at it with each other and each other's throats. I have a problem when they go in sort of the, the sort of racist and bigoted sort of rhetoric that I have an issue with. But in terms of going at each other's throat, I say go for the jugular. If you truly believe what, what, that what they're going to do is going to impact people in a negative way. Because here's the reality. You're one person whom your vote is going to impact 300 million people whom a large a large swath of that people you probably have never met. So yes, I do want you to express those emotions and those feelings um, when you're talking about these things. And then on the other flip side, in terms of like, I think with like how Barack Obama sort of, he is sort of probably the most celebrity-like president we've ever had. I mean, obviously we had Reagan and some other people were actually celebrities and Trump. But my thing is that, I'll be honest with you, I really like Barack Obama. I think he's a cool cat. I would love to get a drink with him and everything. But here's also the same reality. I'll be the first one to criticize his foreign policy when it comes to Africa and the Middle East, his policies on immigration. I'll be the first one to do it. And I would do it with no shame. And I would do it without feeling like as if, you know, I hate the guy or whatever it may be. And maybe sometimes I may hate him. And we have a right to, to feel that way. And we should yell at them. We should even at times curse them out because they are impacting our lives in a really detrimental way. And so I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with people like, for example, Matt Gates and AOC, if they go at each other's throats, again, without having to be bigoted and racist in nature, if they go at each other's throat on TV and have dinner 
at the end of the day, I don't think there's a problem with that. I think they should do that because they are expressing and showcasing sort of the emotions and the sort of impacts that the policies that they're debating and passing will have on real life people. So I want you to express what a single mother will feel like if you pass, you know, uh, a certain bill that will negatively impact whether they get free childcare or not. I want you to express those emotions. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. So yes, you can love a politician almost like a celebrity, but it also doesn't mean that you shouldn't be able to criticize them or that you shouldn't want to criticize them. I criticize a lot of the celebrities that I like. You know, and I think we have to understand how to do that uh, and be able to do it in a um, in a meaningful way and in a way that's uh, what do you call it? Uh, sorry, English is not my first language. Sometimes I'm yeah. <laughs> civil, but in a way that's meaningful in a way that gets things done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you all so much. This was all very heavy. Um, I think election season can be exhausting for all people, and given COVID, police brutality, the rise in extra legal violence, this election in particular. It's beyond exhausting for, for many Black people, and myself included. So I definitely want to encourage you all and just reassure you to care for yourself mentally, emotionally, physically, look after yourself, look after your family. And we began this talk with three words on how you feel um, about this upcoming election. On our way out, I want everyone to end the talk with three words on where you hope this country will be in four years. Always moving forward. Addressing its problems. Working as a unit. Diversity of thought. Supporting the people. Equality for all. These are gonna be five words, but open to big structural change is what I'll say. Liberated and strong. Mm. There you have it. Well, thank you all so much for spending this time with me. You all are geniuses. You're brilliant. You is kind, you is smart, and you is important. Thank you so much. Um, and I look forward to our next conversation.